We're now at Zechariah 9, 5 to 7, this oracle against the Philistines in verses 5 to 7. It's not only against them, but it's also redemptive in that God is going to work to save some of them. In Zechariah 9, 5 to 7, we're right in the middle of an oracle or burden that Zechariah has proclaimed from verses 1 to 10. In verses 1 to 7, he preaches against the surrounding idolatrous nations and the judgment of God against them. But there is a transition in verse 7, and it picks up in verses 8 to 10 in terms of redemption. Redemption or restoration, forgiveness of sins. And that is found in Jesus Christ, according to Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is a prophecy of Christ quoted in Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15. And this is a confirmation. Even commentators, liberal commentators, acknowledge that Zechariah 9.9 is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of Christ. And when we review these verses from verses 1 to 7, although Zechariah is preaching against the sins of these known historical cities and nations, it's not as though it's only a physical oracle. It's not just a physical judgment. It has to be understood spiritually. That which is physical is in the Bible a symbol and a representation of that which is spiritual. The clearest example of this, or the common example, is Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed in Genesis 18 and 19. But it wasn't just because of their sexual sins and other sins that they were destroyed physically. It is an example of spiritual judgment. Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. They are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the same here. And keeping that in mind, keeping the spiritual and the Christological in mind, then by the time we reach verses 8 to 10, and especially verse 9, that is specifically about Christ, then this makes sense. The reason chapter 9, verse 9 doesn't make sense to many interpreters has to do with them looking at this as merely a physical judgment with no anticipation of the future, no anticipation of the coming of Christ, or no anticipation of this judgment in relation to the coming of Christ. But if we keep in mind the spiritual aspect, then whenever we come across what is seemingly an isolated verse about Christ in the Old Testament, we'll see it's not isolated. In fact, if we understood the Old Testament context correctly, we would see it in relation to Christ. And that's the same here in Zechariah 9, 1 to 10. We pick up this judgment now in verses 5 to 7 against the Philistines. The Philistines are mentioned by name in verse 6. But their cities, their cities, their kingdoms in major cities, and it was usually five cities, but here he only mentions four out of the five, probably because they were, at this point, the biggest of the five of the Philistine cities. 
we pick it up at verse 4. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a Mongol race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. Verse 5 uh, mentions three of these cities of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron. And what are they doing? They will see it and be afraid. And what is the it? In verses 1 to 4, God pronounced judgment against their northern neighbors, first in the far north with um, Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, in the land of Syria or Aram. That's in the north, far north, north of Israel or Canaan. Then coming south, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, we have Tyre and Sidon, two coastal cities in the area known as, in ancient times, known as Phoenicia. Phoenicia. And then, south of Phoenicia, and south of Tyre and Sidon, we have still on the coast, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea coast, we have the cities of the Philistines. So southwestern part of the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan, near or adjacent to the land of Egypt, was the land of the Philistines. And in their land, we have these cities, major cities named, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and then repeated again, Gaza, Ashkelon, and in verse 6, Ashdod. These are four out of the five major cities. The one city that's not mentioned is Gath, G-A-T-H. And you may remember there was a famous man, notorious man from Gath. It was Goliath, Goliath of Gath from 1 Samuel 17. He was from that city of the Philistines. Now, this pattern of naming them seems to be taken from Jeremiah 25, 20. The order of these cities seems to be taken from Jeremiah 25, 20, because the sequence is the same in that passage. And it may be, since Jeremiah was a predecessor of Zechariah, that Zechariah has this in mind. In 25.20 it says, And all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. The order is the same, though of course Gaza is repeated in Zechariah. Then, they see the northern destruction and they become afraid. And this fear or terror is described like writhing in great pain. And typically, this writhing in great pain is compared in Scripture to a woman's childbirth. Because especially with the firstborn, mothers are in intense pain. And they will behave like that, be in intense pain and be terrified because it's their first experience 
to be devastated or in torment so much. That's the way Gaza is described, writhing in great pain. Also, um, Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. The expectation of these cities being rich and powerful and long-lasting from ancient times, that they will never be defeated, they will never be destroyed, they will never, never be demolished or without their own king. Foreigners will not rule over them. But her expectation has been confounded. Her, because cities are in the Bible, many times in the feminine, so personified in the feminine, her ekron, her expectation has been confounded. We'll, we notice that he is in the future tense in verse 5, and then the past tense in verse 5. And then he continues into the future tense. The king will perish, Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Why so? Because the prophets will often speak of the future in the future tense, but at the same time, they will often speak of the future in the past tense. Why? Because it has been decreed by God from eternity past, and it is certain, a certainty in God's purposes, and it is a complete thought. It's a complete action in God's mind. And that kind of certainty is why the prophets will often speak in the past tense for a future event. It has happened. The most obvious example of this is the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, it starts in 52.13 and it goes until 53.12. In 52.13, this is a prophecy of Christ, the coming Christ and his death and resurrection. 52.13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's the future tense, right? But then look at 53, 1 to 3. 53, 1 to 3. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And this continues back and forth, future and past tense throughout Isaiah 53. This is because it is prophetic. Prophetic, though the event is yet future, it is certain that it will happen. Therefore, it's a past tense. We have something akin to that in the book of John. In the book of John, John 17, 11. John 17, 11. Christ is praying. He's praying to the Father. He has yet to be crucified in John 17, 11. That event is imminent, but it hasn't happened yet. But he says this 
in 1711. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. The Lord says, I am no more in the world. But he is in the world. He's praying while he's there in the world before he is arrested and put to death. Why does he say, I am no more? Because of the certainty of his departure. That's all. It's a prophecy and a certainty of his departure. The certainty then of all of this devastation upon the Philistian cities. What else will happen? Zechariah 9.5, Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Verse 6, And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. God's speaking of their certain judgment, and he's going to leave them without inhabitants and without a kingship. The kingship will be stripped away from them. They will not have their own sovereignty. They won't be their own sovereign nation. They will be completely in servitude. They are dependent and will be dependent on other nations. Why? Because of their sin. The prophets have been preaching, in, like in Zechariah, other prophets have been preaching against foreign nations. This is a common thread, and we'll see in relation to this, these Philistian cities that they have also done so. Other prophets have prophesied against the, the Philistines. And we have to keep in mind, before we go to these other references, keep in mind that God was not only holding the people of Israel accountable in the Old Testament. He was certainly the God of Israel, the nation of Israel, but he wasn't only holding them accountable. He was holding other nations accountable, as he's saying right here. And why is he holding other nations accountable? Because like Romans 2, 14 to 16 teaches, and like Romans 1, 18 to 32 teaches, they all are sinners they all have a conscience. They all have the law of God in their heart. The Ten Commandments are written on their heart, and therefore they are accountable before God. They are accountable before God even if they don't have the written Word of God in their hands, even if they don't hear the word, written Word of God preached to them. They are accountable to His Word because of what's in the heart, what's in the conscience. Their mind, their thoughts, they know what's right and what's wrong. And when they persist in evil, God holds them accountable. And the prophets are prolific in teaching us this. We saw Jeremiah 25. That's in the middle of a judgment oracle too, against many nations, 25-20. Let's also see Jeremiah 47, 47 verse 1. Jeremiah 47, verse 1. That which, and we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 7. 
That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines, before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent and overflow the land in all its fullness, the city and those who live in it. And the men will cry out, and every inhabitant of the land will wail because of the noise of the galloping hoofs of his stallions, the tumult of his chariots, and the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers have not turned back for their children because of the limpness of their hands, on account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left, for the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Ashkelon has been ruined, a remnant, O remnant of their valley. How long will you gash yourself? Ah, sword of the Lord, how long will you not be quiet? Withdraw into your sheath. Be at rest and stay still. How can it be quiet when the Lord has given it an order against Ashkelon and against the seacoast? There he has assigned it. God's assigned judgment. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18, he explains how God is towards all nations. Jeremiah 18, 1 to 12. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation, or concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. They say they don't want God's way. But God's announcing that if he proclaims against a nation and that nation repents, then he will relent. Isn't that what God did with Jonah and the Ninevites? Nineveh was a foreign city. God sent Jonah to preach to them. They repented, so God relented from punishing them. Ezekiel 25. Ezekiel 25, 15 to 17. Ezekiel 25, 15 to 17. Ezekiel twenty five fifteen, Thus says the Lord God, Because the Philistines have acted in revenge and have taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, even cut off the Carathites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. And I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. And they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance on them. God's vengeance against the Philistines. And why? Because they acted in revenge and took vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity. The Philistines were that way against the people of God. And so God is going to be this way against them in due time, which he did throughout the history of their existence. And finally, in the time of the Greeks and the Romans, they're all gone. They're all gone and not a nation anymore. The book of Amos, Amos chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Amos 1, 6 to 8. Amos actually precedes Jeremiah and Ezekiel many years before in about 780 B.C. Amos says the following. Amos 1.6 Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. I will also cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. What's their crime here in verse 6? They deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So God's vengeance is unleashed against them. Zephaniah. Find our place in Zechariah. Go back a little bit to Zephaniah 2. Zephaniah 2, 4 to 7. Zephaniah preached around the time of Jeremiah, 600 B.C., and he says this. And in relation to Zechariah, this would be about 80 years before Zechariah. Zephaniah 2, 4. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures, with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast will be... For the remnant of the house of Judah, they will pasture on it in the houses of Ashkelon. They will lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. He's going to destroy them, but he's going to also restore their fortune. And that's indicated also in Zechariah when he spares a remnant of them to save a remnant. These are some examples of the prophets preaching against these foreign cities, and particularly the cities of the Philistines here. In verse 6, verse 6, the New American Standard Bible says, 
and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. A mongrel race. In your footnotes of the New American Standard Bible, you will see what it says literally. And what does it say literally? Someone say? Bastard. It says bastard. Now, this is a word that is not used very much in modern English. However, it's not a filthy word or it's not a profane word. It's not a curse word in English. Though it's not used very often, it is not that. One indication is the New American Standard Bible, and most of you have the 1995 edition that says literally it's the word bastard. That's one indication. However, there's other modern translations that use that same word. The Good News Translation, now that's among the modern ones, more um, older, it's about 50 years old, that's older than some of the more modern ones. The Good News Translation, the Good News is written in simple English. That one uses the term in Hebrews 12, 8. It uses this term in Hebrews 12, 8. In a version called a faithful version, in that version called a faithful version, they use this word in the New Testament also. They use this word in Hebrews 12, 8. And then a third one is called the Literal Standard Version. And this Literal Standard Version was published in 2020, in the year 2020. And in, the, in two places, it renders this word as bastard. That is, in Deuteronomy 23.2 and Hebrews 12.8. Now, when I say this word, the equivalent of this word in the Greek New Testament, Hebrews 12.8, but this Hebrew word occurs in two places, Deuteronomy 23.2 and here Zechariah 9.6. Deuteronomy 23.2, Zechariah 9.6. It's the Hebrew word mamzer. The Hebrew word mamzer, it has to do with a blemish or an ir, uh, a disreputable birth. That's what it has to do with something ethically deficient and wrong with a person's birth. And that's why the rendering is bastard. In the ancient translations, when I say ancient, the old translations, they would commonly render it this way. This is the, the word in he Hebrews 12.8 or Deuteronomy 23.2. This is a regular term, such as the King James Version, the American Standard Version. Uh, other old versions, they have this word. And the majority of Americans, they still read, a majority compared to other translations, not that they are 50% or more, but more people still read the King James Version than any other modern version. So they are coming across this word when they're reading it, if they're reading their Bibles. It's in their King James Version today. Now, I say this because the Bible is using a very stern and strong word in this context. But this should not surprise us. If we read the Bible carefully, we will see the Bible uses very strong, biting words in many places. In many places, the Bible does so. 
And why does it do so? It does so to describe the reality. And that reality often is the sinful reality. That's why the Bible describes it like that in the original languages. And we should too. It's a lesson for us to speak forthrightly and candidly about reality, especially sinful reality, because if people don't understand sin, neither will they understand forgiveness of sins in Christ. Having said that, what would the prophet mean here in Zechariah 9.6? What he means is that there's going to be foreigners who don't belong there, whose birth and whose existence doesn't belong there, they are going to own that, that territory, the territory that was the confidence of the Philistines. The pride of the Philistines, the confidence of the Philistines will be cut off. That's why he says, he says, the, a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. They thought they were invincible, but God is the conqueror and he makes sure to uproot the pride of man, whether the Philistines or any other man. The Philistines here are just an example of the pride of man. This is what God's intention is, to uproot the pride of man, to supplant it, to crush it, to annihilate it. That's what he's about. And he will either do that now in redemption or on the day of judgment in judgment against the unrepentant wicked. In both cases, he will take care of human pride. By the way, also, this uh, city in verse 6, Ashdod, is mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 40. The book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 40, it says, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea, which was also on the coast or near the coast. Uh, Azotus is the Greek New Testament version of the Old Testament Ashdod. And Philip went there preaching to the people living there along the coast, along the coast of the Philistines. He went preaching, and certainly there would have been a few converts in his preaching along the coast. That's the ultimate way in which God removes the pride of man, by their being subdued by the gospel of Christ and the spirit of Christ. What is their sin, or how is their sin described? It's described in verse 7. And I will, that's God, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. God's going to remove the blood from their mouth, detestable things from their teeth. Means what? They consumed the blood of animals and they ate detestable meats, unclean meats. And God is going to so redeem them that they won't do those things anymore because they will understand the truth of the gospel. They're not going to be consuming detestable things. And this consumption, this physical consumption, is just a symbol of their spiritual corruption. 
That's why the Bible designated them in the book of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 as unclean animals. Not because the animals in and of themselves were unclean, but God designated them as an object lesson to illustrate the uncleanness of man's sins. His soul is unclean and illustrated by these animals. We see the first example of this in Genesis 9, 1 to 7. Genesis 9, 1 to 7, about blood and unclean animals, or eating of animals. Genesis 9, 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That was the restriction. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. At this point, he says, every moving thing, verse 3 that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Prior to Moses, every moving thing was food. But prior to the flood, the green plant was food. After the flood, every moving thing and the green plant became foods. But not the blood. Not the blood of the animals. Even before Moses. Then during the time of Moses, Moses has a similar prohibition. In Leviticus 17, 10, and 11. Leviticus 17, 10, and 11. And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The atonement is in the blood, the offering of the blood of the animals. Now, atonement, he doesn't mean by this atonement that it is their eternal source of forgiveness, but it is the symbolic source because it is a symbolic atonement, symbolic and typological source of their redemption. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 65. This is a condemnation of the people of Israel. Isaiah 65, 4. He's describing their sins and says, 65, 4, who sit among graves... And spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh, and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots. Also, Isaiah 66, 3. 66, 3. Rebuking them for their hypocrisy. 66, 3. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. 
He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol, as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Also, 66.17, Isaiah 66.17, Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Now, Acts 15. Acts 15, 20 to 29. Acts 15, 20. We write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. 15, 29 that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. In these ways, they are going to be redeemed from the sins that they commit. The Philistines, because God will remove their sins and he will change them. That's why he says in verse 6, Zechariah 9, 6, then they also will be a remnant for our God. They also will be a remnant. Why they also? Because there's a remnant in Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Correct? Romans 9, 6 to 9. And God has not forsaken his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham, Romans 11.1. 1. But even among the Gentiles, the Philistines, they also will be a remnant for our God. God will redeem some of the Philistines as a remnant. Zechariah preaches. Isaiah preaches like this too. Isaiah, he says in Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Foreigners, he mentions in verse 6, who hold fast his covenant, who come to the house of prayer for all the peoples. This is quoted, verse 7 is quoted in Matthew 21, 13, Mark eleven seventeen. This house of prayer for all the nations. And everyone in verse 8, both within Israel and outside of Israel, will be called Israel he says, belonging to God in one flock, one shepherd. John 10, 
16. One flock with one shepherd. Okay, and further, Zechariah 9, 7 says, And be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be a Jebusite. Like a clan in Judah? He means that they will be absorbed in the people of God. They will be assimilated into the people of God. Ekron will be like a Jebusite. Ekron was not in Jebus or Jerusalem. Jerusalem used to be called Jebus because the Jebusites, the Canaanite peoples, used to live there. But it was changed to Jerusalem. And he's saying, the city Ekron, there by the coast, the Philistine city, is going to be like the Jebusites in the city of Jerusalem. And what does he mean by that? Well, in Joshua 15, 45 to 47, the Jebusites <coughs> and the city of Jerusalem, it, and uh, also the Philistines, they belonged to the tribe of Judah. The Philistine territory belonged to the tribe of Judah. And in Joshua 15, the tribe of Judah's various cities and territories, boundaries, are mentioned in Joshua 15. In the time of David, we have an example of somebody who was a Jebusite who still lived in Jerusalem and most likely converted because he is agreeable to King David to sell his property to David so that David can offer sacrifices on that property. We may recall this to be the case from 2 Samuel 24, 15 to 25. 2 Samuel 24, 15 to 25. It's the, the parallel for that is 1 Chronicles 21, 9 to 27. 1 Chronicles 21, 9 to 27. But let's go to the significance of this. 2 Chronicles 3, 1 to 2. 2 Chronicles 3, 1 to 2. Where Solomon builds the temple. And it'll tell us where he built it. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Solomon builds on Mount Moriah, which is Genesis 22:14. In 20, Genesis 22:14, um, Moriah and this place is prophesied as a significant place of sacrifice. Ultimately, the sacrifice of Christ. But meantime, the temple was built on this mountain. And how was this portion of the mountain acquired? Because David bought it, according to, to those other accounts in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, from Ornan or Arauna the Jebusite, who was friendly to David, and even offered to give everything to David for free. 
And David says, no, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. He says so. So just as he assimilated into Judah and the people of Israel, and likely a man of faith, that's what God is predicting will happen to the remnant of the Philistines, not all the Philistines, but to some of them, a few of them, to be incorporated into the people of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.